0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, March 23rd, 2019. Episode 69, The Confession of St. Patrick, Part 2. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and today we're going to hear the rest of St. Patrick's Confessio, which we started last time. Since we left a few topics hanging last episode, we're going to be a bit front-heavy on the commentary this time, Uh, so if you want to jump straight to the text, you can use the chapter feature on your playback app, uh, if it supports chapters for podcasts. And if, perchance, you haven't yet heard our previous episode with part one of the Confessio, you really ought to go listen to that one before this one, if you want any of this to make much sense. Okay. Our first topic, to pick back up, is the language and style of the Confessio. It's something that Patrick himself draws attention to. He opens the book with, Ego Patricius, peccator rusticissimus et minimus omnium fidelium. I, Patrick, sinner, most rustic, and least of all the faithful. That rusticissimus, most rustic, is hard to translate, because in late Latin it has layers of meaning and connotation, that aren't covered by any one English word. In classical Latin, rusticus has a primary meaning of, well, rustic, of the country. It can also be used substantively to mean a country person or peasant. But even in ancient Rome, this word was strongly linked to speech and discourse. So you see writers contrasting rustic versus urbane speech and manners. Uh, And those come with an additional connotation of Traditional values versus sophisticated city ways, with the sophist part emphasized. Uh, It's the culture wars, basically. This carries on into late antiquity, where rusticus comes to signify a person who only speaks the vernacular language rather than proper Latin, and later still, as proper Latin becomes a more and more rarefied thing. Rustica signifies the inability to read or write Latin, and it's frequently paired as an opposite to literatus, one who is literate. So in its late phase, the word is specifically tied to formal language proficiency and has little to do with where you live. So our translator, Newport J.D. White, renders that first phrase of the Confessio as, "'I, Patrick the sinner, am the most illiterate and the least of all the faithful.'" but we shouldn't take this to mean that Patrick was literally illiterate. Uh, What it means is that he didn't complete the ordinary Latin grammar school education people of his class would normally get, and that, as a consequence, his Latin has been acquired late in life and lacks the fluency and polish of the Latin of many of his peers. He tells us as much when he writes, quote, I have not studied as have others who in the most approved fashion have drunk in both law and the holy scriptures alike, and have never changed their speech from their infancy, but rather have been always rendering it more perfect. For my speech and language is translated into a tongue not my own, as can be easily proved from the savor of my writing in what fashion I have been taught and am learned in speech. End quote. It is certainly a part of the common humility topos that we have seen in many medieval writers to apologize for one's rough and unpolished Latin style, uh, an apology that is usually a bit overblown and more a symbolic gesture than anything else, but I think the specifics of Patrick's situation make his statements about his language much more believable. He was born into a well-off family. He tells us his father was a decurion, an office like an alderman, and owned a sizable estate with a large number of slaves. As a decurion, Patrick's father, Calpurnius, uh, would have been responsible for collecting a quota of taxes, and if he couldn't extract the full amount of this from others, he was obligated to make up the shortfall by paying out of his own pocket. And this might actually account for the country estate and the family's connection to the church. Uh, Patrick also tells us his grandfather was a presbyter or priest. um, And married clergy were an ordinary thing at this point in church history. One way to get out of the obligations of being a decurion while still enjoying the noble privileges of the office was to move out of the towns and also to become a clergyman, which could exempt you from some duties. This rather mercenary approach to religion, uh, kind of like declaring your business a church to avoid taxes might also explain why, despite having Christian clergy in his family, Patrick seems not to have developed any strong religious feelings or convictions during his childhood. He does tell us that his education was interrupted by his captivity, so he must have started in a Latin grammar school, which would have been normal for 4th and 5th century British elites. Despite being a Roman province, the Romano-British still largely spoke their own British vernacular as a first language, acquiring Latin and the ability to read and write it through formal schooling, a bit like French among the English aristocracy about ten centuries later. Clearly, Patrick did receive a fuller Latin education after escaping Ireland, but this was in Gaul as an adult. The later biographers say he was educated by Bishop Germanus of Usser but he himself doesn't really say anything about his clerical training in the Confessio. Indeed, probably the murkiest element in the Confessio, narratively speaking, is what happens in the 30 years between escaping his captivity and returning to Ireland as bishop, which is a bit odd since you think these points would be relevant both in a statement of how one developed spiritually and in a defense against charges of inadequacy to be a bishop. Anyway, one way Patrick's education shows through is in his extensive use of scriptural quotation. Indeed, it's more than quotation. He basically writes in the idiom of scriptural Latin. The confessio is a tissue of scriptural phrases knitted together. Interestingly, these aren't derived from the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, which had been completed around the same time that Patrick is estimated to have been born, in the last couple of decades of the 4th century, Instead, Patrick's scripture comes from older Latin translations. This gives you a sense of what the core of his education was. He doesn't quote from any classical authors, and even his reference to patristic writers is fairly limited. His Latin is the Latin of the Bible. Well, early Christian translations of the Bible. But you do get a strong impression, I think, of what his preaching might have been like. I once had a roommate who had a kind of academic fascination with the apocalyptic televangelist Jack Van Empey, who also speaks in practically a collage of biblical quotations, but delivered with verbal parenthetical citations of chapter and verse each time, which is to say constantly, uh, and it creates a rather strange effect. Uh, But I have to say, I feel a bit of televangelist coming through as I read the Confessio and maybe even more so with today's half of the text, because he introduces a new theme, money. He starts this with metaphors of debt and repayment that come straight out of the Bible and aren't particularly unusual. I mean, it's easy to forget that the way we usually use redemption and redeemer today, in a religious sense, is in fact a figurative extension of the Latin redemptio, a term for monetary transaction, you know, to buy back or pay ransom. So, Patrick is giving us this conventional language of a life lived in repayment of God, but then this shifts to a discussion of real money, and we end up with what appears to be a response to some unstated accusation of financial impropriety committed by Patrick as a bishop. If the first half of the confessio is marked by the expression of humility and grateful wonder, an increasingly defiant kind of tone is taken on as we move through this latter half. Now, I don't want to besmirch Patrick, but as a reader, I just have to say the rhetorical effect of all this is not necessarily helpful. Uh, It's an odd thing, but if he had just said, some people have accused me of mishandling money, here's how those accusations are false, and then justified himself, I think it would play much better. But just the little thing of leaving the accusation unstated creates a, the saint doth protest too much kind of impression. You know... And so, as one indebted to God's grace, I offer my service in repayment. And, by the way, I have never defrauded anyone, and I never took gifts from my flock, even though they really pushed them on me. Now, I did have to resort to bribery from time to time, but that was all in the service of God. At least, in the context of modern political self-defensiveness, it doesn't come across great. Now, I'm willing to chalk it up to Patrick's lack of argumentative finesse rather than a guilty conscience— Uh, but you can judge for yourself. The last bit of context I want to establish before we dive back into the Confessio is related to attitudes towards the kind of mission Patrick was pursuing in Ireland. You'll hear him put a lot of emphasis in today's half of the Confessio on preaching, quote, to the ends of the earth. This reflects two key things. One is the marginality of Ireland from the European and British perspective. Patrick writes that Ireland is the, quote, "...limit beyond which no man dwells, usque ubi nemo ultra est." Indicating that Patrick understood Ireland to be the westernmost inhabited land, and that the Atlantic marked the edge of the world. He is very consciously evoking a kind of manifest destiny image for Christianity, that it must continue to spread to the very edges of the map, which is precisely where Ireland lies. This brings out the second point which is the fact that at this stage of Christianity's development in the 5th century, missionary work was not particularly emphasized by the ecclesiastical authorities. Before then, Christianity had kind of permeated the Roman Empire and followed it as it pushed its frontiers, but when those frontiers begin to contract, and as the legions withdraw and the empire crumbles, the bishops and monks left behind are largely content to just maintain their communities. In the centers of church power, a lot of energy and attention were directed inwards in the codification of orthodox doctrine and the rooting out of heresies. Much spiritual fervor was directed towards asceticism. This is the century in which monasticism rises out of the desert hermitages. To the degree that you see missionary activity, it often takes the form of attempts to convert kings and other ruling elites— who then sometimes go on to impose Christianity by law in their kingdoms and on their subjects. But you don't see much interest from the church itself in converting a pagan peasantry. We often think of early Christianity as a religion of slaves and servants and the occasional soldier, but by the late empire, it was the religion of the Roman elite. It was an urban phenomenon. There's a reason why another classical Latin word for country person or rustic or peasant paganus, came to signify non-Christian, pagan. So, Patrick's calling to go preach to a relatively hostile pagan nation was looked a bit askance at. Some, no doubt, saw it as troublemaking, the kind of thing that might just provoke more raids on British Christians, and some probably thought it was a waste of time and resources, which may be connected to all the fiscal justification Patrick goes into here but this is why you see Patrick basically making the scriptural argument for international evangelism. He is not only justifying his own calling, but he's attacking this inward-turning attitude. This half of the text also adds even more layers to the audience question I raised last time. He's clearly directing arguments back to the authorities in Britain and on the continent, but he also makes even more direct exhortations to the followers he has around him. He's really utilizing the format of the open letter to talk to everyone who has any vested interest in him. And so, let's hear the end. Uh, One last linguistic note is that Patrick uses the Latin scota to describe the Irish. Our translator renders this as scotic. Uh, Scot, as an Irish label, is the normal usage of this word in late antiquity and the early middle ages, And you can hear a fuller etymological explanation of that in episode 48, concerning the sharp wit, unorthodox wisdom, and brutal death of John the Scot, who was probably an Irishman. Okay, and here is the conclusion of St. Patrick's Confessio. Now it were a tedious task to declare particularly the whole of my toil, or even partially. I shall briefly say in what manner the most righteous God often delivered me from slavery and from twelve perils whereby my soul was endangered, besides many plots and things which I am not able to express in words. Nor shall I weary my readers." But I have as my voucher God, who knoweth all things even before they come to pass, as the answer of God frequently warned me, the poor unlearned orphan. Whence came to me this wisdom, which was not in me, I who neither knew the number of my days, nor cared for God. Whence afterwards came to me that gift so great, so salutary, the knowledge and love of God, but only that I might part with fatherland and kindred. And many gifts were proffered me with weeping and tears, and I displeased them, and also against my wish not a few of my elders. But God being my guide, in no way did I consent or yield to them. It was not any grace in me, but God who overcometh in me. And he withstood them all, so that I came to the heathen Irish to preach the gospel, and to endure insults from unbelievers, so as to hear the reproach of my going abroad and endure many persecutions even unto bonds, and that I should give up my free condition for the profit of others. And if I should be worthy, I am ready to give even my life for his name's sake, unhesitatingly and very gladly, and there I desire to spend it even unto death, if the Lord would grant it to me. Because I am a debtor exceedingly to God, who granted me such great grace that many peoples through me should be regenerated to God and afterwards confirmed, and that clergy should everywhere be ordained for them for a people newly come to belief, which the Lord took from the ends of the earth as he had in times past promised through his prophets. The Gentile shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, as our fathers have got for themselves false idols and there is no prophet in them. And again, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And there I wish to wait for his promise, who verily never disappoints. As he promises in the gospel, they shall come from the east and west, and from the south and from the north, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as we believe that believers will come from all parts of the world. For that reason, therefore, we ought to fish well and diligently, as the Lord forewarns and teaches, saying, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And again he saith through the prophets, Behold, I send fishers and many hunters, saith God, and so forth. Wherefore then it was exceedingly necessary that we should spread our nets, so that a great multitude and a throng should be taken for God, and that everywhere there should be clergy to baptize and exhort a people poor and needy as the Lord in the gospel warns and teaches, saying, Go ye therefore now and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And again he saith, Go ye therefore into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And again, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And in like manner the Lord, for showing by the prophet, saith, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And Hosea saith, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her one that hath obtained mercy which had not obtained mercy. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Wherefore, then, in Ireland, they who never had the knowledge of God, but until now only worshipped idols and abominations, how has there been lately prepared a people of the Lord, and they are called children of God? Sons and daughters of Scottic chieftains are seen to become monks and virgins of Christ. In especial, there was one blessed lady of Scottic birth, of noble rank, most beautiful, grown up whom I baptized, and after a few days she came to us for a certain cause. She disclosed to us that she had been warned by an angel of God, and that he counseled her to become a virgin of Christ and live closer to God. Thanks be to God, six days after, most admirably and eagerly, she seized on that which all virgins of God do in like manner, not with the consent of their fathers, but they endure persecution and lying reproaches from their kindred, And nevertheless, their number increases more and more. And as for those of our race who are born there, we know not the number of them, besides widows and continent persons. But the women who are kept in slavery suffer especially. They constantly endure even unto terrors and threats. But the Lord gave grace to many of his handmaidens, for although they are forbidden, they earnestly follow the example set them. Wherefore then, even if I should wish to part with them, and thus proceeding to Britain, and glad and ready I was to do so, as to my fatherland and kindred, and not that only, but to go as far as Gaul, in order to visit the brethren and to behold the face of the saints of my lord, God knoweth that I used to desire it exceedingly. Yet I am bound in the Spirit, who witnesseth to me that if I should do this, he would note me as guilty, and I fear to lose the labor which I began." and yet not I, but Christ the Lord, who commanded me to come and be with them for the remainder of my life, if the Lord will, and if he should keep me from every evil way, so that I may not sin in his sight. Now, I hope that I ought to do this, but I do not trust myself as long as I am in the body of this death, because he is strong who daily endeavors to turn me away from the faith, and from that chastity of unfeigned religion which I have purposed to keep to the end of my life for Christ my Lord. But the flesh, the enemy, is ever dragging us unto death, that is, to enticements to do that which is forbidden. And I know in part wherein I have not led a perfect life, as have other believers, but I confess to my Lord, and I do not blush in his presence, for I lie not. From the time that I knew him... From my youth there grew in me the love of God and the fear of him, and unto this hour, the Lord being gracious to me, I have kept the faith. Let who will laugh and insult, I shall not be silent, nor conceal the signs and wonders which were shown to me by the Lord many years before they came to pass, since he knoweth all things even before the world began. Wherefore then I ought without ceasing to render thanks to God, who oftentimes pardoned my folly and carelessness, and that not in one place only, so that he be not exceedingly wroth with me, to whom I had been given as a fellow laborer. And yet I did not quickly yield in accordance with what had been shown to me, and as the Spirit brought to my remembrance. And the Lord showed mercy upon me thousands of times, because he saw in me that I was ready but that I did not know through these revelations what I should do about my position, because many were forbidding this embassage. Moreover, they used to talk amongst themselves behind my back and say, why does this fellow thrust himself into danger amongst hostile people who know not God? They did not say this out of malice, but it did not seem meet in their eyes on account of my illiteracy, as I myself witnessed that I have understood." And I did not quickly recognize the grace that was then in me. Now that seems meet in mine eyes, which I ought to have done before. Now, therefore, I have frankly disclosed to my brethren and fellow servants who have believed me, for what reason I told you before, and foretell you to strengthen and confirm your faith. Would that you, too, would imitate greater things and do things of more consequence. This will be my glory for a wise son is the glory of his father. You know, and God also, in what manner I have lived from my youth with you, in the faith of truth and in sincerity of heart. Moreover, as regards those heathen amongst whom I dwell, I have kept faith with them, and will keep it. God knoweth I have defrauded none of them nor do I think of doing it for the sake of God and his church, lest I should raise persecution against them and all of us, and lest through me the name of the Lord should be blasphemed. For it is written, Woe to the man through whom the name of the Lord is blasphemed. But though I be rude in all things, nevertheless I have endeavored in some sort to keep myself both for the Christian brethren and the virgins of Christ and the devout women who used of their own accord to present me with their little gifts and would cast of their ornaments upon the altar, and I returned them again to them. And they were scandalized at my doing so. But I did it on account of the hope of immortality, so as to keep myself warily in all things, for this reason, namely, that the heathen might receive me and the ministry of my service on any grounds, and that I should not, even in the smallest matter, give occasion to the unbelievers to defame or disparage. Perchance, then, when I baptized so many thousands of men, I hoped from any one of them even as much as the half of a scruple, tell me, and I shall restore it to you. Or, when the Lord ordained clergy everywhere by means of my mediocrity, and I imparted my service to them for nothing, if I demanded from one of them even the price of my shoe, Tell it against me, and I shall restore you more. I spent for you that they might receive me, and both amongst you and wherever I journeyed for your sake, through many perils, even to outlying regions beyond which no man dwelt, and where never had anyone come to baptize or ordain clergy or confirm the people, I have, by the bounty of the Lord, initiated everything, carefully and very gladly, for your salvation. On occasion, I used to give presents to the kings, besides the hire that I gave to their sons who accompany me. And nevertheless, they seized me with my companions, and on that day they most eagerly desired to kill me, but my time had not yet come. And everything they found with us they plundered, and me myself they bound with irons. And on the fourteenth day, the Lord delivered me from their power, and whatever was ours was restored to us for the sake of our God and the near friends whom we had provided beforehand. Moreover, ye know by proof how much I paid to those who were judges throughout all the districts which I more frequently visited, for I reckon that I distributed to them not less than the price of fifteen men, so that ye might enjoy me, and I might ever enjoy you in God. I do not regret it, nor is it enough for me. Still I spend and will spend more. The Lord is mighty to grant to me afterwards to be myself spent for your souls. Behold, I call God for a record upon my soul that I lie not, nor would I write to you that there may be an occasion for flattering words or covetousness, nor that I hope for honor from any of you. Sufficient to me is the honor which is not seen as yet, but is believed on in the heart. And faithful is he that promised, never does he lie. But I see that already in this present world I am exalted above measure by the Lord, and I was not worthy, nor such a one as that he should grant this to me, since I know most surely that poverty and affliction become me better than delights and riches. But Christ the Lord, too, was poor for our sakes. I am indeed wretched and unfortunate, and though I should wish for wealth, now I have it not, nor do I judge mine own self, For daily I expect either slaughter, or to be defrauded, or reduced to slavery, or an unfair attack of some kind. But none of these things move me on account of the promises of heaven, because I have cast myself into the hands of God Almighty, for he rules everywhere, as saith the prophet, Cast thy tear upon God, and he shall sustain thee. Behold, now I commit the keeping of my soul to my most faithful God for whom I am an ambassador in my ignoble state, only because he accepteth no man's person, and chose me for this duty, that I should be one of his least ministers. Wherefore then, I shall render unto him for all his benefits towards me. But what shall I say, or what shall I promise to my Lord? For I am only worth what he himself has given to me. But he trieth the hearts and reins, and knoweth that enough, and more than enough, do I desire, and was ready, that he should grant me to drink of his cup, as he granted to others also who love him. On which account let it not happen to me from my God that I should ever part with his people which he purchased in the ends of the earth. I pray God to give me perseverance, and to vouchsafe that I bear to him faithful witness until my passing hence for the sake of my God." And if I ever imitated anything good for the sake of my God, whom I love, I pray him to grant to me that I may shed my blood with those strangers and captives for his name's sake, even though I should lack burial itself, or that in most wretched fashion my corpse be divided limb by limb to dogs and wild beasts, or that the fowls of the air eat it. Most surely I deem that if this should happen to me, I have gained my soul as well as my body, Because without any doubt we shall rise on that day in the clear shining of the sun, that is, in the glory of Christ Jesus our Redeemer, as sons of the living God and joint heirs with Christ, and conformed to his image that will be, since of him and through him and in him we shall reign. For that sun which we behold by the command of God rises daily for our sakes, but it will never reign, nor will its splendour endure but all those who worship it shall, wretched men, come badly to punishment. We, on the other hand, who believe in and worship the true Son, Christ, who will never perish, nor will anyone who doeth his will, but he will abide forever, as Christ will abide forever, who reigneth with God the Father Almighty and with the Holy Spirit, before the worlds and now and forever and ever. Amen. Lo, Again and again I shall briefly set forth the words of my confession. I testify in truth and in exaltation of heart before God and his holy angels that I never had any cause except the gospel and his promises, for ever returning to that nation from whence previously I scarcely escaped. But I pray those who believe in and fear God... Whoever shall have vouchsafed to look upon and receive this writing which Patrick the sinner, unlearned verily, composed in Ireland, that no one ever say it was my ignorance that did whatever trifling matter I did, or proved in accordance with God's good pleasure, but judge ye and let it be most truly believed that it was the gift of God, and this is my confession before I die. So, if you've listened to both this and the last episode, you can say you've read, well, heard, but I think that should be a distinction without a difference. Uh, At any rate, you've consumed, though that's maybe the worst phrase of all, uh, about two-thirds of all of Patrick's known original writing. And if you're still with me this time next year, uh, I'm penciling in the letter to Caroticus for next St. Patrick's Day. Once you've got that under your belt, you can claim to have read basically the entire corpus of Patrick's writings, setting aside some fragments of dubious authenticity, and maybe I'll fit those into that future episode, too. In doing research for this pair of episodes, I was a bit surprised by how blatantly partisan so much of the analysis of Patrick is. I guess I shouldn't have been. He has that special mix of being both an icon of national identity and historically surrounded by clouds of ambiguity, which means it's easy to shape the scant material we have on him to fit whatever purpose and message you need it to. So, for example, uh, Mara B. de a sister of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, analyzes the Confessio in her 1998 book Patrick, the Pilgrim Apostle of Ireland. Uh, This has some good historical discussion in its introduction, but it is unabashedly and directly a book that seeks to place the confessio as a core text for Irish Catholic identity. She also wants to elevate Patrick's literary genius in a direct counterattack on the claims that he's a simple writer of a kind of blunt, unsophisticated Latin. Part of this involves getting into some numerological kind of analysis of hidden symmetries that, frankly, I find very hard to view without deep skepticism, uh, because most numerological analyses are... Flawed and easily distorted by confirmation bias. Um, The other side, or an other side, is represented by the commentary in the Reverend Thomas Olden's translation of the Confessio from 1853. Olden says that his purpose in making his translation is, quote, "...to render it, the Confession, accessible to the general reader by means of an English translation, and to enable everyone to judge for himself of the purity of the faith originally planted in Ireland." End quote. And which, in practice, and per almost every other statement by Olden, means to rescue Patrick from the perversions of Catholicism. Olden is an Anglican curate in 19th century Ireland, He doesn't just want to make the national saint available to Protestants, he wants to prove that the national saint was a Protestant, uh, doctrinally speaking, uh, and that his text manifests none of the errors of the Church of Rome or the quote-unquote evils of monasticism and its corrupting influence on Christianity He even uses his historical argument to try to prove that Patrick wasn't authorized by the Pope to go to Ireland, fundamentally divorcing him from any connection to Rome and its tainting influence. I doubt it's intentional, but Olden even offers a kind of subtle rebuke of monasticism in his inversion of the conventional humility topos. He writes, quote, the translator is conscious of its many imperfections, yet when it is remembered that the confession is of great antiquity, that the Latin is admitted by the writer himself to be very bad, and that the mistakes of transcribers are numerous, he feels himself in some degree entitled to claim the indulgence of the critical reader for any faults which he may discover in this attempt to illustrate the text and to render it faithfully into English. End quote. Our monkish writers tend to prostrate themselves before the reader, begging forgiveness for any faults of style or errors in their work. Olden claims explicitly entitlement uh, and puts all the blame on others. It's not endearing. Anyway, even if these translators and commentators are acting with noble motives in their explications of Patrick's writing, all these efforts to lay claim to him and his legacy kind of feels to me like Patrick being pulled into a second and unending captivity. Well, I hope you found some points of interest in the Confessio. It is a bit different from our normal kind of text, and it only barely qualifies for our time period, but I think it is evocative. At the very least, this month we've lived up to one of the main goals of this show, which is to liberate primary texts from the mere soundbite status they're usually reduced to. We certainly could have carved the Confessio into just its juiciest bits and kept it down to one episode, uh, but I think it's good for our intellectual digestion to get a whole text from time to time. Like, whole grain. Anyway, as to the broader humanist merits of the Confessio, I'll give the last word to John Morris from his introduction to a translation by Alan Hood. Quote, He is no more typical of his time than any other man in any other time. But through the eyes of Patrick, men may penetrate beyond the headlines and the generalities of historians, ancient and modern, may perceive something of the human problems that are common to their age and his, and also something of the essential differences that distinguish one age from the other. Patrick's moving and intensely personal account of his life and troubles is much more than a story of the conversion of the Irish to Christianity— It touches the mainsprings of human endeavor, and teaches not only the history of one period, but the substance of what history is about. Alright, our mystery word this episode comes from the language of the Emerald Isle. It is udar, U-D-A-R, which is simply enough the Irish word for author, an appropriate title for St. Patrick, who is the author of our earliest surviving written texts from Ireland. Now, Udar is modern Irish, which I had to go with to get a word starting with U. I don't know if you've noticed, but our mystery words have been proceeding in alphabetical order. If you had noticed that, give yourself a point. Uh, Anyway, the form of this word in Old Irish is ochtar, uh, A-U-G-H-T-A-R, and that spelling makes the etymology of this word a bit clearer to the trained eye. It's a word borrowed into Irish from Latin. It's Latin auctor, which also means author and is the source, via French, of the English word author. The classical sense of auctor is a bit broader than English author. According to Lewis in short, an auctor is, quote, he that brings about the existence of any object or promotes the increase or prosperity of it, whether he first originates it or by his efforts gives greater permanence or continuance to it of persons, a progenitor, father, ancestor, of buildings, etc., founder, builder, of works of art, a maker, artist, and in a transferred sense, the author of a writing, a writer. Uh, so note there that in the classical usage, it is commonly used in a phrase so that you are the outdoor of something, uh, and that thing is usually specified. Modern English author comes prepackaged, as it were, with of texts attached to it, uh, to the degree that it almost feels metaphorical when we use it in other senses, like being the author of one's own fate. Um, but those other usages are just going back to the original, broader sense of auctor as maker. There's also a fascinating discussion to be had uh, at a later time about the concept of authorship in the Middle Ages, and who is and isn't considered an alctor, and how that concept does and doesn't overlap with the creation of original works. But, as I said, I'll save that for when we have a text from a later medieval author on the table. But before we leave this word, uh, we should acknowledge its other major descendant, as maker-creator-provisioner, Auctor also had a legal and political use. It meant, uh, again as given in Lewis and Short, quote, one by whose influence, advice, command, etc., anything is done, the cause, occasion, contriver, instigator, counselor, advisor, promoter, etc., and thence, one who advises the proposal of a law and exerts all his influence to have it passed, a supporter. That usage informs the word auctoritas, a view, opinion, judgment, will, decision, bidding, command, decree. From that, it's also used to mean the will of the Senate and generally might, power, reputation, dignity, and that's where auctoritas lives on in modern English authority, even in an age when authors tend not to be accorded as much public or cultural authority as in former times. And that brings us to the end of this miniest of miniseries. Uh, indeed, a two parter is presumably the smallest possible size of miniseries that can fit the definition. You can find out more about the various sources I consulted for this episode by reading the episode post on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send email to me there to patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also leave comments, Uh, and I would like to take a moment to recognize Nathan Hoyne, who left a very interesting comment for the previous episode concerning some recent articles on ritual nipple-sucking in early Ireland that would seem to lend credence to the literal interpretation of that phrase from the first half of the Confessio. Uh, He included some links, so you can check that out on the website if you want to read more. You can also talk to me with your own observations or connections to other sources via Twitter. I'm at MDT Podcast. And lastly, you can support the show via donations through Patreon. And donors get access to a range of special bonus content, including an audiobook and a film commentary. And while you remain a monthly donor, you will continue to get this year's audiobook, which I'm in the planning stages of, uh, and some more future film commentaries, for which I have a whole list of fun candidates already compiled. So I'll be back next time with a new text and a new riddle. Until then, here's hoping all your confessions may be of the spirit-affirming kind and not the interrogation chamber kind. And thanks for listening.